He actually escaped on the back of a pickup truck through the desert, spent a night in the desert, got, got shot at by border police. They saw us for a moment. We, we were able to get away um, and actually stayed in Pakistan for three months with other escapees. You're listening to Your Jewish Life, Your Way with Karen Cinnamon, the podcast that explores what it feels like to be Jewish or Jewish in 2023. On the show, we divulge all of the secrets and know-how to being confident in celebrating and living your Jewish life, your way, with easy, simple ways to embrace your mishpacha through the traditions and rituals you've been dying to learn more about. So save your kvetching, we're talking less Jewish guilt and more Jewish joy here on out. Yalla, forget about the right and wrong ways to be Jewish. It's time to create a Jewish life you love living. Welcome to another episode of Your Jewish Life, Your Way podcast. I'm Karen Cinnamon, your host. I hope you have listened to this podcast before, but maybe you're new here today and that I want to extend an extra warm welcome to you. We like talking about what it feels like to be Jewish in 2023 on this podcast. We are inclusive, we are embracing, we inspire you to live your Jewish life your way. And I love sharing diverse stories of Jewish life on this podcast as well. My guest today is someone that I can relate to on some levels, but absolutely not on others because she actually escaped from Iran after the revolution into America. She resides in Los Angeles. She's a very, very successful certified plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills. She's a mother of three. She's also carved out a niche as one of Israel's staunchest defenders on social media. And I know a lot of us listening sometimes feel, how can we do that? How can we rise up and find our voice on social media when it comes to defending Israel? Well, you'll be able to hear from Dr. Sheila how she decided to do that and what it means to her and how to do it effectively. So this is a great episode about living that busy life. We also talked about, you know, day-to-day things like how to create time for all the things that are important to you. Dr. Sheila has so many components to her life and we looked at, you know, how she balances her work as an activist with a busy career how she creates time for her family. And we also look at how Dr. Sheila stays strong in defending Israel despite the backlash. Something that, again, I think we often feel burnt out from it all. So lots to learn and lots to be entertained by. I think this is a wonderful episode. Let's dive in. Dr. Sheila, first of all, it's such a pleasure to meet you. Obviously, I've regrammed and retweeted a lot of your content over the years, and here you are, a real person. <laughs> we are here, we are talking, we are doing this. We are doing this. So a lot of people know who you are. I've obviously, you know, talked about some of what you're known for in the intro, but between us girls, you know, you are a... <laughs> To me, it looks like you've reached the, the top of the pinnacle of the career of, of sort of plastic reconstructive surgery in Beverly Hills. You're an entrepreneur with successful businesses. You're the star of an Emmy-nominated Emmy Netflix series. You're an activist using your platform for good. You're a wife, a mother. I'm yeah. sure you're a wonderful daughter and all the rest of it. So fair to say from the outside looking in, um, you know, you appear to be powerhouse, unstoppable success. I would love to know what what does success look like to you? How do you define success? Yeah, so I always say uh, success without fulfillment is failure. And so I think, you know, you can be the most successful plastic surgeon in the whole entire world. But if you're a you know, family is what you wanted and you totally put that on the back burner and didn't achieve that. You didn't have children and you wanted some. And that was, you know, all of those things are what would fulfill you. It doesn't matter how successful you are, quote unquote, in your work, you're not fulfilled and therefore you failed. Similarly, I always say, you know, I do all of these things. I'm, I have three surgeries right after I talk to you today. Um, but, you know, I also drove my kids to school this morning and hopefully I'll be done in time to pick them up. So I, I always tell my students also if you're successful in your work and your kids are on crack you also failed so yes <laughs> marriage is you know you know on the rocks because you haven't paid enough attention and that goes both ways like that's you know also something you could have done better so I always try to really pay attention to the things that I think fulfill me the most and, and, you know, being my own boss and having an online business of skincare and the nonprofit and 
having other providers in the office who can generate while I'm maybe taking my kid to her field trip with her class. That I think um, is the juggling of it is the hardest part, but I think it's also the most fulfilling part. So I worry, I worry for the new generations when they're like, oh, I just want an easy life. or I don't want to have kids because it's too hard. Or I just think the hard is what makes things meaningful and purposeful. Yeah. And I want to come on to that for sure. But there was a few things you said that I want to pick up on. And first of all, with all the things that you do, you know, you talk about, so you say fulfillment is the, is the running thread. So if mm-hmm. some of the the wonderful things that you're doing, you start to feel a lack of fulfillment, are you very self-aware to just drop things or move away from things? Or do you just delegate it out to someone else, but keep it going? Like what Talk, t- tell us about behind the scenes. I'm delegating everything. I feel like I delegate everything yeah. now that I can. That, that, that's a great awesome. tip in itself, not to be scared to ask for help. It's this do it right. all, we and have it all thing. Yeah. For me too, that wasn't something that came naturally at all. I always felt like I could do things faster and better and it would just be better if I did it myself, but there's no way I'd be able to get as much done um, if I didn't delegate. And it's so funny. I, I, I got a business coach like three years ago and I didn't have a personal assistant. She's like, are you... <laughs> She's like, anyone needs a I personal like way of doing things. You. And so she, she, she's like, if anyone needs one, it's you. And, and she kind of moved me into that. And it's been great. You know, I don't have to drop the shoes off at the shoe repair place. Even like, you know, hosting, she'll get all like, you know, the fork knife and the spoon and the napkin with the ribbon Brilliant. around. Yeah. All of that done. And she enjoys it too. So it's like the invisible life admin that somehow lands often on a woman's shoulders in a partnership. Don't ask me why. And it's nothing to do with sex. It's just the way what I see with my No, and there was a study, you know, in my nonprofit, we had a speaker come and she was saying in the US, and I thought this was only Persian. like married life but no (laughs) in the u.s even if the woman is the only breadwinner not like makes more than her husband if if the husband stays home and the woman is the one bringing in the money 82 percent of the housework still falls on the woman i mean yeah i see it with my friends my career women friends who are you know have partners who are stay-at-home fathers or whatever but you know take uh buying the presents for a kid's party or what you know all the invisible stuff as it were but um yeah, it was funny. My husband's a brain surgeon. And one time I asked him to do something. It was like something, I don't know. He's like, I can't do everything. And I'm like, you do nothing. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I was like, you go to work, you go to the gym and you come home. Let me tell you about me. And I literally listed, cause we don't like take credit for it. Right. We don't like throw up people's faces and say, look at what I did. Look at what I did. It's just not in our nature. We just get it done. Right. And so I just listed from everything that I did that day. I did the kids' applications for the private school. I did, you know, getting their camp signups going. I, you know, carpool for the game coming up this weekend that's an hour away or like whatever it is. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll get that done for you. <laughs> Have you have you heard of the handbag design? I don't know how big she is in LA. Anya Hinmarsh, she's very big. I have, I have heard. Yeah. So she's written a brilliant book called if in doubt, wash your hair or something. And it's a bit about her sort of life learnings. And I really latched on to how she defines success, which was because, you know, she's also on the surface, a high, high achiever in every area of her life. And she and I love this. And I wonder what you think of this. She said, I'm paraphrasing here. It's not exactly mm-hmm. success is being contented with what you have, not always thinking, well, you know, because like you've achieved so much and I'm sure maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like you're only just getting no, started. It's so, true. <laughs> it's so true. I think, I think that really hit me when we were shut down in Los Angeles for two months during COVID. Like we weren't allowed to see patients, inject lasers, operate, none of it. Wow. At home when I was sitting at my like home office, which is in my bedroom overlooking like a golf course. Right. And I'm just like, what am I doing? I was like, I made it. I did it why am I running so fast? Like, who am I trying to prove wrong anymore? And I just realized like, if you're living to prove people wrong, or you're living to like, prove anything at all, you're not living for yourself. You're living yes. for others. Yes. And so I just literally dropped it. I'm like, the only one enjoying my house is either my personal assistant or <laughs> occasional housekeeper that comes. I'm not. <laughs> and oh. so I really just made some changes. And I started running every decision I made through a quality of life filter. And I said, is this going to hit income? And is it also going to improve quality of life? So for example, real estate investments, we'll do something that's in a mountainous ski area. My family enjoys that. I don't ski, but let's get a condo in an area that we'll appreciate, you know, but also we can enjoy and also we can Airbnb, you know? So just like those kinds of decisions. And if it doesn't 
you know, in the beginning of the interview, you were like, you know, how do you make decisions or whatever? So it's like, it, I always run it through that, you know, is it ticking off both boxes? Good investment improves my quality of life. Am I going to go buy an apartment building downtown Los Angeles? Everyone's calling me every other second. <laughs> I smell mold. There's a leak, like asbestos. Like, no, that's not going to improve my quality of life. So even though that would be a great investment, no, thank you. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. I love all of that. And, you know, you're doing, like I say, so many amazing projects and it seems, to, you know, that you have a very high, set very high stand for yourself. Everything I've looked at is just wonderful. And I love what you said. I latched onto something that you said in one of your interviews. You said, don't put all your eggs in one basket to get success and purpose from one thing. And yes. can you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, this is kind of dark for a second, but we'll, we'll come back into the light. So there was a plastic surgeon, a female um, that was, you know, a full-blown plastic surgeon. I was a, a resident and she got into a car accident and she couldn't operate anymore. So she literally climbed upstairs, went into her bathtub and slit her wrists and committed suicide. Because that was the only thing that was bringing her a sense of purpose or joy. But the scary part is I was so wrapped up in becoming a plastic surgeon. My husband would always joke and be like, within two minutes of every conversation at a party, you tell people you're becoming a plastic surgeon. Like you're such a douchebag. Like why? That passion, <laughs> that passion. But I drive. think it wasn't yeah. passion. I think it was my entire ego and self-worth and purpose. Mm-hmm. So when I heard the story about this, you know, unfortunate, you know, female physician, I related to it. I was like, oh, I could see that. And I was like, wait, that's not good. Like I better get help. And so I actually went to a therapist for the first time in my life. And I've had a lot of like stuff happen and I probably should have gone much earlier, but I went for three months, once a week, it was Wednesday nights at 9 PM during residency. Cause it was the only time I can make it. This nice gentleman would stay for me that late. And he basically said something that he said, you know, you are your core values. That's where you gain purpose. That's where you gain a sense of self-worth. And everything else that you do is a sub-personality to that. And you never want one sub-personality to be so strong as trying to kill all the other sub-personalities. So I felt myself resentful against my own children because maybe they were taking up time for me publishing another paper or becoming chairman of a department of plastic surgery somewhere. And so I realized that wasn't healthy either. And as soon as he said that to me, it released me. And I was just like, okay, that's interesting. And then I also realized like, you know, you have to get enjoyment and fulfillment from all the things that make you happy. Otherwise you get burnt out in that one thing. And that actually happened to me too, two years out of residency, I passed my boards, I was in my own office and I was like, this is it. I was like this, I worked like 33 years to, you know, never got like bad grades, you know, always first in last to leave working so hard. This is it. Now I'm just supposed to go into this practice, be by myself and make money. And it wasn't enough shockingly, even though something I'd worked hard for my entire life. And so I realized like, no, if I'm into fashion and clothing, I should do something with that. If I'm into skincare and, and creativity, I should do something with that. If I'm into marketing, because I also did business school. So I'm like, if I'm into marketing and that's creative and there's new apps all the time and there's new algorithms all the time. And it kept my like juices going that I should lean into that. And I think all of those things and my family and, you know, parties and entertaining and, you know, stuff like that, all those things make me feel fulfilled collectively. So if I don't water all of those lawns, I'm going to burn out the lawn, the the plastic surgery lawn. I'm not going to want to do it anymore. I'm not going to be as great of a doctor. I'm not going to be as kind. I'm not going to be as happy and bubbly to my patients. So I just realized, you know, you have to water whatever that we're all like multifaceted, right? You have to water all of those aspects. Yeah. And you're such a doer, you know, you're not a talker, you're a doer. Yeah. <laughs> and I want and that, to- that I realized too, it's like, you can go to a conference, you can listen to a podcast and you can enjoy it in the moment. But if you don't take one thing and actually, you know, factuate it, get it done, you just listened, right? It was just like passive. Yeah, and that, that, that's actually one of the things. And I realized that's what differentiates me a lot from my colleagues too. When I go to a conference and I hear a tip, I'll write down 15 things, but I make sure I get at least one of them done when I get back. 100%. And even like with this podcast, I always say, anyone that's listening, we're talking to you right now, don't just listen, take down those 15 points that we're talking about. There's already so many nuggets that I'm learning from Dr. <laughs> Sheila and take action on one thing. I want to, you know, dive into your childhoods, which I know has impacted your path undoubtedly. But just before I do, I've got to ask selfishly, because I also 
I'm very driven and very ambitious and sometimes struggle with that, you know, with the family and the kids and everything and that balance and any sort of time management tips really, because yeah. it's the key to not getting burnt out and be- feeling fulfilled. Yeah, no, absolutely. I literally keep one of these like written <laughs> calendars, yeah. Yeah. So old, but I need to have it like all in front of me. And, um, I, I, one, one thing that I realized that was also very difficult and kind of a huge risk for me was raising my prices. So I was on a panel with a plastic surgeon in Paris and we were at this international plastic surgery conference and he goes, yeah, I'm booked out two years. And I was like, great for your ego, but that means you're a terrible business person. Like (laughs) it's like supply and demand, right? If, if somebody, if somebody's that high demand, you're probably not charging enough and no one wants to wait two years to get something they want done now. So I was thinking, okay, well, when I get booked out two months, I'll slightly raise my prices. Mm. I started doing that about seven years ago. And so now what happened is, you know, there is demand. My schedule is, you know, filled about a month is where I like it. Maybe, you know, even three weeks. And I don't have to work. I don't have to do as many surgeries in order to get the same amount of income. So now instead of operating five days a week, I operate two days a week. I do virtual consults from home on Wednesdays. And then every other Monday, I'm in the clinic doing injectables and lasers, but I have other people doing those things too while I'm not here. But if they want me, it's every other Monday that I'm available to do it. And so that's opened up every other Monday. It's opened up every single Thursday and the weekends. So I'm really in the office two and a half days a week. Now, does that mean when I'm home, I'm doing nothing? No, I'm doing podcasts, I'm doing interviews, I'm pitching TV show ideas, I'm organizing my closet, I'm, you know, making sure that, yeah. you know, and and I can see that you're, you're, that's where you're, you know, we talked earlier about feeling energized and fulfilled. And that's, it's all coming together for me now. Because if you were burnt out from working day and night, five, seven days a week, you wouldn't even be enjoying your work as much. Anyways, right. I'm sure right. by the time you get into surgery, you're, you're in that frame, you're ready for that. And yeah. And, I'm, and, I've, and the other thing too, is with surgery, like some like a facelift that used to take me eight hours to do now takes me two and a half hours to do you become better, you know, when to speed up and when to slow down. And so a breast dog used to take me an hour and 20 minutes. Now it takes me 26 minutes. Mm-hmm. So you are more efficient in your work. Your team becomes better. Like your pit crew is able to change those tires more quickly because they know what you like. And so things do become more efficient at work too. So even if I have three surgeries in a day, I could be out by two o'clock and go get my kids. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, yeah, this is inspiring. Yeah. Or for example, I didn't used to have my own surgery center behind this wall. You know, so now I don't have to drive to a surgery center. That 15, 20 minutes just driving to somebody else's surgery center is saved now and also helps efficiency. So I, I think efficiency is key. I'm efficient in all aspects of my life, I would say. Yeah. And like what I'm seeing is you've literally designed your life brick by brick. You know, there's improvement every day. I'm learning yeah. every day. No year has been the same as the year before. Like we've, I had the Netflix show. I had you know, a lot of like TV appearances before that, which would bring in like a lot of people. I've, then it was COVID that totally changed everything. So I feel like I'm in this constant, like, you know, Gumby sort of flexibility um, mindset to just sort of adapt to everything that is happening in the world. You know, maybe there's a recession coming now. What are we going to do for that? You know, should we do a little spa membership? Like, you know, we look at every entity. Constantly out and make it you know adaptable so it's, yeah, it's yeah progress I'm you know I, I think I'm adapting all the time and and learning day by day I love it I mean I could talk to you about business for hours but I know that listeners are not here to listen to a business podcast, <laughs> so I'm going to bring it back to something you I'm going to latch on something you talked about earlier about you know hard work and you know again on the outside things can appear ah, but there's hard work has gone into it however talented however clever you are so let's talk about your upbringing which was unusual for you know a lot of the people listening were born in the country that they're currently living in let's talk to me about childhood and also how Judaism played a role in your life growing up and, and shaped shaped you yeah today um well I was uh, born in 1979 the year of the Iranian revolution and my 
extended family kind of saw what was happening and they left around 1978. But my father's mom was older and she was there. But but my dad was saying, hey, maybe it's a good idea to have Sheila be born in the U.S. So actually, my mom was nine months pregnant, flew to New York, had me in New York. I was a citizen because they said in case we need to get out, it'll be a lot easier if we have one child that's a citizen. So I was born in New York, went immediately back to Iran. Revolution just kind of kept going. Iran-Iraq war started. My dad was seeing that there really wasn't much, you know, of a future there, especially they had two daughters and they were and then they were on Iraq war, there's bombs flying everywhere. So they were just like, okay, we got to get out. My dad had done his residency at University of Pennsylvania and there was a conference happening in pathology. So he told the government, hey, I'm going to this conference in New York. And he left, left the passports of me, my mom and my sister with the government and basically flew to Vienna and stayed in Vienna. He became a doctor uh, for like Hayas, which is a, a nonprofit that helps asylum seekers kind of get out of their country where they're being persecuted. And so he was getting help from them. They gave him a little apartment to stay in, but he sort of treated the asylum seekers that were coming through and waited for us. And we actually escaped uh, on the back of a pickup truck through the desert, spent a night in the desert, got, got shot at by border police. They saw us for a moment. We, we were able to get away and actually stayed in Pakistan for three months with other escapees waiting for visas. Then we finally made it reunited with my dad after three months in Vienna. We were in Vienna for another three months uh, waiting for visas and, you know, to be able to come to the U.S. We were able to eventually make it and settled in Los Angeles. And sort What of age were you when you arrived in Atlanta? I was um, six when we left Iran, seven by the time we made it. Um, and everything you've just shared with me, do you have memories of yeah. it all? Yeah. yeah. So you, yeah. you arrived you arrived in LA, I guess, had to start school, not speaking English. Had to start school, didn't speak English. I was in ESL for a few months, picked it up pretty quickly at that age. I was in first grade and it was tough. I was nerdy, you know, I, I but which was, which was also good because it kind of kept, kept me focused on my schoolwork. I was very smart, though at the time I didn't, I had a lot of imposter syndrome and just wanted to fit in. And, but I was never the type that would like dumb myself down. I didn't know how. It wasn't like in me. I was always like hand in the air. Like, so <laughs> it didn't help my nerd status at all. And then, you know, I, I, all my friends in seventh grade left to private school. I didn't even know what that was. I'm like, what's private school? And so in the eighth grade, which is not a typical grade to apply, I actually applied myself had some of my teachers proofread my stuff, look over the application. Because my parents were also like, just get straight A's. Everything else is on you. Wait, um, were you? <laughs> and yeah, you're very okay. different from parenting yeah. today. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, even the SATs, like SATs or like the ISEEs to get into private school, I just walked in. There was no like force taking. Like we didn't know what that was, you know. And so I got accepted in eighth grade to a really you know, prestigious school in Los Angeles. It was very, very rigorous. It was harder than actually Columbia University where I went to college. <laughs> I already knew everything. I'd done everything already in, in high oh school. Gosh. And, you know, went to Columbia, was in New York, then went to Albert Einstein College of Medicine for medical school, got accepted to University of Southern California Plastic Surgery which was like the best match. And that was a whole story on its own because I'd met my husband three months before that. And so I ended up only ranking one school, which is called suicide matching, but got in. <laughs> that surgery is really hard to get into, believe it or not. Yeah. So, you know, um, and, I and got- then- but yeah, in, 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 I'd love to know, was was Judaism in the background at home? Was it at the forefront? You know, my, did, you, my did, you do, was, did you have a bat mitzvah? Like, was Judaism... I, I kind of didn't. So oh, I didn't go to Hebrew school. Um, my mom, when I was 13, she got her real estate license, sold one house. And then me and her went to Israel and Egypt. And we went to the you know Western Wall. And I had a rabbi, like, say a prayer over my head. And that was my bat mitzvah. Lovely. Um, Who doesn't want yeah. that? Bat mitzvah? <laughs> she was that. very, like, super superstitious it's really interesting it's a very like superstitious version of judaism yeah. like or she would she wouldn't drive on shabbat but she would if i opened the door for her she would sit in the car and i'd have to close the door and somebody else would drive that was okay or like yeah she, but i would have to turn the burner up and down she wouldn't yeah. touch you know like it was just yeah. like a very funny uh form of judaism and we would only go to temple on like yom kippur it wasn't, we wouldn't go all the time. Whereas I think now with my own kids and seeing how much 
giving, especially in this world with drugs and sexualizing children so much earlier and, you know, the, the magazines and the, you know, sexuality kind of everywhere. I, I find that it's a lot more important to give them those roots. And so, and I love going to temple. Temple is like the only place I can shut my mind off. And so I just, I adore going. You go um, every Saturday now? I was, I was going every Saturday. Um, but, you know, I hope to pick back up again too. Mm. Well, it's faces, but, yeah. isn't it? You know. Yeah, but I but I do, you know, something my friends do like learning with a rabbi online Thursday morning. So I try to join in on those when I have time. So I think it plays a much bigger role now because I think giving your kids religion and not having to reinvent the wheel of how to live a happy life, like you know, taking time off Shabbat, shutting off your phone. Or like saying a prayer in the morning and people like say, oh, I'm going to meditate in the morning. Well, okay, that's prayer. That's Modeani, right? Or I'm going to go pay membership to this place in Santa Monica called Unplugged where they take my phone away. Okay. <laughs> like this stuff's been figured out. Yeah, we have a framework. Yeah, exactly. But the instructions are there and people figured it out thousands of years ago. So I think it's really important to give them that backbone and that those roots. And so if you know, their friends are on drugs and that's shaking their tree. Their roots are so strong that they don't give into that. You know, I think it's become a lot more important in my parenting than I think it was back then. But I don't think there were so many threats coming at the kids back then as there are now. But do you think that growing up, maybe your parents felt they had to hide their Jewishness a bit or was that not part of it? Well, we did. In Iran, you would hide your Jewishness. I mean, I always knew I was Jewish, but, you know, a lot of people changed their last names to not sound Jewish. You would never openly, like even in America, I remember one Hanukkah, I wanted to put like a cardboard cutout of a menorah on our gate outside. My husband's like, are you crazy? We're going to get a mezuzah on my door. Oh, we're going to get attacked. And, you know, it, it came with them to Los Angeles, that feeling. Yes. Of, and yes. I guess your parents wanted to assimilate and be American. And, um, well, you know, I think like not so much that. I think they really, you know, kind of, it wasn't like an active thing, like, let's be American. We spoke Farsi at home. We always had, you know, Persian dinners, Shabbat the best food. <laughs> uh, yeah, the best food. So I don't think there was like that to assimilate so much, but it was more like that fear kind of came with them yes. of, if we have our tight-knit community of you know Persian Jews in Los Angeles we don't, we don't need to advertise it like even my mother-in-law when my kids would come home from a Jewish day school if we were going to go out she'd be like you can take your keep off now like you would say that Tita or she would tell me like you should put your star of David like in your shirt you know what I mean it wasn't like not being proud of it it's just that trauma that fear of living in Iran as a Jew yeah. kind of our first generation you know immigrant family you know how much I love being Jewish and all the good stuff, but you know, all my life I've tried to find a community that feels authentic, inclusive and fun. And it's hard as a modern Jewish woman, you're running around, busy, lots going on, but you want that space where you've got your like-minded Jewish women around you, your squads, your girls, and you also feel empowered to go out there and live your best Jewish life. And that's why I created Smashing Life. It is now all inside an app. It's at your fingertips on your phone and it's everything you could possibly want as a modern Jewish woman. We've got Jewish calendar, Jewish recipes, incredible chats, conversations. It is the place where Jewish women discover, share and connect. So I invite you to join my community where there's no labels, no judgment, just authentic connection at smashinglife.club. I'll see you at smashinglife.club. So do you feel like you can now sort of pass on the best bits in the way to your children? So like the resilience that you've had to build or maybe you're naturally resilient, I don't know, but certainly these experiences would make you resilient. So, you, you know, you pass, you've got all the hard learnings that you've been through, but then the, the Jewish way that is going to nourish them as well. Um, what sort of tools are you passing on to your children? What's important to you? I think that, you know, the hard work, the immigrant, the first generation is always going to have that, you know, burn the candle at both ends kind of mentality. But I think it's telling them like what my parents sacrificed to bring us here, what they gave up to give their daughters an opportunity. Also, I think it's, you know, modeling the behavior. They see how hard I work. They see the impact that I'm making through my activism, you know, for Jews worldwide. And I think that that does rub off on them. You know, they'll speak up like my daughter. At That's birth, wonderful. 
Yeah, she's in a secular place and she heard her friends talking about like the Israel-Palestine conflict and she knew what they were saying wasn't right, but she didn't she didn't feel like she had the knowledge or the historical knowledge to to speak up in front of her own friends and say, no, you guys, that's actually not true, or you know, that's not that's not factually correct. So she'd come home and be like, Mom, what do I say when someone says this? And I was like, Okay, here's what you say. This is why, these are the facts, these are the years. Yeah. Empowering them. Yeah. Was able to stand up in front of her whole school. Um and actually speak up uh, and, and, you know, say what she thought, which was Fantastic. a huge like, journey and growth. Uh, yeah, and that pride also, it's not just speaking up on empty, it's the pride that you've instilled, the Jewish pride, the connection to Israel and, you know, so many wonderful tools. So let's talk about your activism. I mean, again, it's not necessarily expected in a way because you've got a lot on your plate. You're busy. I didn't you have, have your to identity. <laughs> yeah, you have your identity and you can, you know, I think we can all be activists in inverted commas in our own little worlds. Like to actually go out there and do it on your big platform is uh, is almost like another full-time role along your it other was, five was, or six was, full-time roles <laughs> so let's dive into that <laughs> and sort of learnings and what sparked you to, to use your platform in that way yeah a couple of years ago my daughter you know she's in the ninth grade she started the ninth grade and I said oh my gosh she's four years away from college and as you know in America college campuses aren't because they're becoming increasingly less friendly towards Jews and definitely Same in the UK and I said you know what I need to kind of put a little bit of Jewish pride. And if I don't speak up, I don't want her to go to college and be ashamed or hide who she is or her, her opinions and thoughts. They're, everyone needs to hear about everybody's thoughts. That's the whole point of college. And I just started doing like hashtag Shabbat Shalom with fear, with anxiety, with trepidation. <laughs> so it didn't connect to your posts, but it would like just, it was like an end rounding it up. Like, Hey, I'm Jewish. Around. Yeah. It was just like, you know, Friday yeah. posts and it would be maybe me, you know, with my hands around the candles and saying, nice. Something like that. Just, you know, wishing you guys a peaceful, restful weekend or something like that. And um, can I just stop you there for a minute? So what was the reaction to that light stuff? Like what what happened at that moment? I think, but it was more like me coming out as a Jew when my family was always like, don't hang the menorah. Don't do this. Yeah. And I got invited to speak at the federal building because in California, they were taking Holocaust education out of public school curriculums. And so they invited me to speak in front of the federal building. My husband was like, I'm going to take you make sure there's security there. Like he was freaking out. So I spoke and he literally like whisked me off the stage and we went home. I did like <laughs> all these talks, but that was kind of like another little step forward into discomfort. Yes. And then conflict happened in May of 2021. I just went, like, I saw my colleagues that had a hundred thousand followers or 150,000 followers, you know, saying colonization and apartheid and genocide and all of those buzzwords they love to use. And I was just like, I literally wanted to be smowed. I don't know what it was. I couldn't shut up. I was posting eight and a half hours a day in, 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 you know, staying up at night, waking up at two in the morning with anxiety, posting from two to 4 a.m. Like just, you know, it was something within me that I couldn't control. And I yes. couldn't probably to my like health detriment. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I couldn't because I knew like deep down, like, you know, Israel, A, just the Jewish connection, number one. Number two, that is our safe haven, right? And so if that goes down. I feel like we're less safe all over the world. And that was really just like super, just from my core values, I couldn't stop. And with my first post, I lost 3,000 followers and I just kept going. And somebody had told me, you know, up until the age of 40, you need to have an ego in order to achieve and build and grow and fight and like all of this stuff. And then after 40, it's about grounding yourself and letting your ego go and sort of letting, like giving back. And so I said, okay, you know, I'm, I'm 41. Um, I'm 43 now, but back then I was thinking, okay, I'm 41. I'm letting my ego go. I, I gained all these followers. Now I'm going to lose them all. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's like monopoly money. It's not real. It's, it's, it's a follow account. Exactly. Not, like, exactly. like we said at the beginning, it doesn't define you. It doesn't fulfill you. It doesn't, you don't wake up in the morning fulfilled by your follow account. You wake up in the morning fulfilled by living out your core values and using your platform for good. So, but still like that can still that's still the harder path. It's much easier to stay safe, safely silent or do like a little yeah. line, not to be, you know. Uh, yeah. Wow. Exactly. So, so, so I just started posting like crazy. I posted an Israeli flag, like at one of the, you know, protests. And it was just like, a, it was a big thing. I was getting attacked a lot online. I got some death threats. Um, I got a pig's hoof 
a rotted pig's hoof sent to my office from New Jersey. Oh no. Became really good friends with the LAPD, good friends with the FBI. <laughs> I actually got armed. Um, I went and got my conceal and carry license um, in California, which is not an easy feat, but I got that license, learned how to shoot um, and, you know, just protect myself as I think all Jews should, to be honest with you, whether however comfortable you are, whether that's pepper spray, a taser gun, a real gun, whatever it is. Um, I think that's really important to empower yourself and never be afraid, but at the same time, be able to protect yourself. So, you know, all of those things. And I just kept going and I've, and I've kept going. And I think that it's been one of the most fulfilling things in my life. I've gotten so many amazing messages from, you know, at that time, it would be children in bomb shelters in Israel on, on social media. And they literally would message me and be like, you're the only light I see like beautiful messages. And, Yes, you get some hateful messages too, but you know, those messages, you know, you're on the right track, you know, you're telling the truth and you have to fight uh, to educate people because nobody else was. And the other thing I hear a lot too, is when I speak to like women physicians or whatever, you know, talk I'm giving wherever people come to me, they're like, because of your post, I started posting too. Like you inspired me to also post and I never thought I would. Well, it circles back to what we said at the beginning, like you are more than than your identity as a career woman or a family, you know, there's more there. And how fulfilling must it feel to to be able to play that out? But you need yeah. all the guts, you know, and I think social media has played a huge part in, in fueling the hate. And actually, I'm sure you'd agree with me that most of your conversations are, and for your activism are and the biggest impact is happening on social media. So it's sort of a double edged but, but what would you say to someone who does fear sort of not even just speaking out, but being proudly Jewish? I think we have to. Like, we've never in history done well as weak Jews, as as assimilated Jews. It just has not gone well for us. Yeah. The only that it's gone well is when we're proud. Like, look at Israel and, and that we fight back. It's the only time. So I encourage people to learn from our own history learn from your you know own like roots and see when in history we've done well and that's what we have to do and also what are your tips for engaging with these kind of conversations online obviously it's a total waste of time to back and forth with like proper haters but the people who are sort of maybe a little ignorant or just don't really get it yeah and you can't I, um, I never engage with people that are like you know of course Total all, waste of time. I yeah. just don't think it's worth the time because actually they'll report you and you can get, you know, your DMs shut down or you can get your account shut down. So I don't engage with those people. I just block, delete, or I restrict them. So they think they're commenting, but nobody else can see the yeah. comments. Um, and no, but I do engage with people. And I have a lot, I had a lot of people be like, you know, if it wasn't for your Instagram, I would never hear the other side of the story. Thank you so much. I've done my own research and now I agree with you. Mm. So it's one by one. I think that you don't have to go full blown, you know, all at once. It certainly wasn't a full blown thing for me until the conflict happened. It was just baby steps into discomfort, like slightly discomfortable, like, you know, like I'm a little uncomfortable and then I get comfortable there. And then I push myself a little bit more. But if we feel scared now, if we don't speak up and fight back, how will our little brothers and sisters feel then their generation or how will our, our children feel or our grandchildren feel? So right now I still feel like there's time and we have to speak up so that our future generations, you know, don't have to or won't have it so hard. And then there's the next step where, OK, you can be someone feels that they can be proudly Jewish, that they can sort of engage in comments about anti-semitism but when it comes to israel they feel um all sorts of things and we're made to feel all sorts of things about defending israel like what are your thoughts on talking about israel on social media and the whole sort of almost fashionable uh movement that says you know you can be uh, you can like you can love jews but still be uh against zionism you know it's just everywhere yeah so i just point out that you know anti-zionism is not a new even form of anti-Semitism. It's kind of recycled, right? It's happened before. It's the acceptable way to be anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, or racist, I like to say, against Jews. Let's use the progressive language and just call it for what it is. Judaism is a race. When you do your 23andMe or your genetic testing, it doesn't say you come from here. It says you're 10% Jewish because 
Judaism is an ethno-religion. It predates the definitions of ethnicity and religion. So it really is in your DNA. If you get dug up a thousand years from now, they will say this person was Jewish because it's in our DNA. Unlike other religions, by the way, it doesn't say you're 10% Christian when you do your 23andMe. So it is, you know, in our DNA, right? Yes. That's a a differentiator. I think people don't understand. They think it's just a religion, right? No, we are, our DNA comes from Judea and Samaria. We are indigenous to that land. And therefore you cannot be like in your Judaism, I feel, and deny your DNA and deny your ethnicity. Right. So this is, yeah. So this is a way of saying, you know, I'm anti-Semitic in a more you know, comfortable way. So I try to just call it for what it is and bring that out and educate people on that topic. I think that's huge. Mm. So again, like I did a live with uh, Brooke Goldstein yesterday. She's trying to kind of separate those two things and say, no, you know, Judaism, you don't have to even be responsible for what's happening in Israel, which we're not obviously in the U S but you know, I, I, at the same time, don't ascribe to a total separation of the two. No because way. Yeah. The two. It's in our DNA. And you know? also, like, there's all kinds of Jews. You know, some Jews I know just don't have a connection. There's one maybe they've never visited. They don't have any fat, whatever. But I'm deeply connected to Israel. I'm half mm-hmm. Israeli. My mother's Israeli. I've got a huge family there. I love it. It's a huge part of my identity. And why should I feel, and I'm not, by the way, but I'm just saying, why should I feel silence to to talk about that loudly on a on a jewish platform yeah, we're like being saying, made to feel you know, i'm not against say like i don't know you can say like in another ethnicity like take what they're saying they're like you know i am not against chinese people but china shouldn't exist yeah. or i'm not against french people but france shouldn't exist it's, like it's so blatant and it's- so it's the same thing and there's this double standard but when you actually like point those things out to people they're like oh <laughs> you know so let's i hope one thing that people take away from this podcast is take point things out to people and if you don't feel confident just read it up educate uh, educate yourselves or that's what? what i did too and i think that's yeah. the beauty of social media is you're not face to face in a debate you can if somebody says something you can keep them on red go google it and then come back and give them the answer <laughs> but i just encourage people don't even do it to answer other people do it for yourself this Absolutely. is your absolutely this is your own roots and your own history. You should know it for yourself anyway. Absolutely. And it's empower, you know, knowledge is empowerment and you can't feel confident to engage in these debates or conversations in the same way without that knowledge. And it's, it's everywhere. It's easy to read up, but yeah, mm-hmm. I want, I want one of the big takeaways from this podcast for anyone listening to not feel in any way, even 1% silence to talk about Israel and what they feel about Israel. And no one's saying Israel's a perfect country, just like anywhere else. Yeah, no country know, is. It, but it's sort of held to these impossibly high standards. I just, and we are um, recording this at the right at the start of March. And I just posted something today about um, um, an Israeli GoFundMe raising half a million shekels for the Palestinian families that um what that that were attacked and mm-hmm. um you know there's all sorts of people saying oh they would do that wouldn't they to show their you know to show their yeah it's like you can't win so we should we just we should, I, that's what i think right they're going to demonize us what like we, when we're like supporting lgbtq rights yeah like, or lifting people out of the earthquake in in, in syria why should we care what other people think yeah you know what's right for the longevity of this country so we're going to lighten things up in a minute we are going to jump into our quick fire round which is super fun Mm -hmm. just before we do i want to ask you you know a lot of people and i don't know i probably include myself in this they're like you know it's not like we're here to sort of end anti-semitism full stop but we can move the needle and what are your thoughts on that you know do you get anti-semitism fatigue you just think i'm done with i can't have these conversations anymore or do you see the needle being moved no i think that the way that the needle is moved is by pushing back and by not giving in one inch so what i've noticed in many different things is you know they push push and you're like, okay, well, that's easy enough. I'll give them that little bit of inch. And then they keep pushing until you push back and you're like, no, stop. And then they'll stay there for a while. And then they'll come back and push, push, push. And you're like, okay, well, that's not a big deal. You know? So I I saw that happening during COVID. I've seen that happening a lot of movements um, all over the U S. And so I think we can't give them an inch. 
We can't give them an inch. No land, nothing can be given up because it doesn't work. It hasn't worked. The things that work, and I think the major problem, like the, you know, it's so funny. Again, I was speaking to Michael Oren. It is against Palestinian identity to allow Israel to exist, right? In this Hamas world, it's in their, it's in their charter. You are asking like for a two-state solution, for example, right? You're asking them to give up their identity. Their identity is river to the sea. Their identity is destruction. You're asking them to give that up. Is that going to happen? Well, maybe not until their education happens, right? So mm-hmm. it's anti-Semitism too. Don't give an inch. Don't let them say anti-Zionism is okay, but anti-Semitism is not okay. Don't let them say Zionist speakers can't come to the campus to speak, but Jewish ones are okay. The good Jews are okay. We cannot give an inch. It never works. It's not It's not the problem and it's not the solution. It's not the, like I'm a doctor, right? It's not the correct diagnosis and it's not the correct treatment. So we, we I think that we really just have to be, use all sorts of, whether it's social media, whether it's the legal system, whether it's speaking to people in charge, whatever it is, we cannot give them an inch. Okay. <laughs> we are going to lighten it up with a fun quick fire round. You can answer me with one word or you can elaborate with longer stories, whatever, whatever comes into your head. Are you ready? <laughs> yes. Let's go. So what's your favorite Jewish food? Favorite Jewish, so we don't do that stuff. We well, don't do that. Per- I actually want to hear about some wonderful Persian cuisine. Oh <laughs> yes, I would say my favorite. So we just so that people know, like Persians, we have basically Thanksgiving dinner every Friday night. <laughs> just the turkey is missing, but the, the the spread is the same. So I love warm sabzi and I love tadig, which is the you know the burnt rice bottom with the with the potatoes in Are it. You good at making it? It looks like a real science. Uh, I don't I don't love cooking to be honest with you. I can make some stuff to kind of keep my children alive, but, <laughs> but I let them order out a lot. And also, you know, Shabbat dinners when we go, my mother in law will give us like some stuff to go home, which will sustain us for a couple yes. of days. <laughs> also, my kids, you know, can cook their own stuff too. I, I love making. I them love cook. They enjoy it. Absolutely. What's your favorite Jewish holiday? Probably Hanukkah, just because we like to throw parties and we threw a really big one a couple of years ago. We called it like the Festival of Lights and we had women come with like headpieces that were candelabras and they did, it was just like a big deal. So I think. What did you wear? <laughs> I wore um, a rose gold sequin gown. <gasps> oh, <laughs> I hope you have your Hanukkah party. Very shiny, very, very photos. lit up. Yes. <laughs> Do you have a favorite Jewish tradition? I think probably just Shabbat, just because it brings the family together. And I think sometimes it's the only time in the week where you sit down and you have political conversations or you have conversations about stuff happening in the world. And there's a lot of people. So you get a lot of opinions and input. Whereas in the home, sometimes the kids come home and they'll just grab something, take it up to the room and they have a tutor or they need to study or they have a game. So I think it's the kind of anchor of the week where we come together and have those conversations. Mm, I love that weekly reflection. Jerusalem or Tel Aviv? Jerusalem, 100%. I don't need to fly 16 hours to go to the beach. <laughs> um, h- hiking up Masada or swimming in the Dead Sea? Swimming in the Dead Sea. I've gotten so lazy. I don't understand working out. I, I <laughs> got the runners. I, it never made me feel good. Um, so yeah, I would say definitely floating in the Dead Sea. And who's a celebrity you'd most want to interview on your podcast? I was listening to your new podcast today. It's awesome. I know. Probably Nikki Haley. I think she, I've met her once. I got to introduce her at a Jewish event. Ah, let's get her on. <laughs> I just think she's so poised and brilliant in her answers. And just, she comes from a place of love. You can hear it. And so I'd love to get her on. And finally, if you could have Friday night dinner with three Jewish people, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Albert Einstein. <laughs> Gosh, I, I, I mean, I know Dennis Prager. I think he's brilliant. I always love hearing from him. So Dennis Prager and ooh, Lenny Kravitz. Oh, he could do the music as well. <laughs> Sing the prayers. <laughs> You're the first guest we've ever had on who chose three men for the her friday night dinner go you <laughs> interesting sorry sorry ladies <laughs> ah, 
I didn't even ask you also, what are the things you personally love about Jewish culture, Jewish religion? I think for me, like I said, it's kind of a guide to living a fulfilled life mm-hmm. and to live a healthy life. And so I think that that's the thing. It's kind of like an instruction book to me. Oh, I love that. And I love what you said about a healthy life. You know, I've thought of Judaism as a framework and a guide and there's always, you know, an answer to something, but healthy, you're right. It's so nourishing. Um, it's so nourishing, but also just like one day off a week, you know, even with the land one year off every seven years, you know, like that's why the fruit in Israel tastes so much better. Like have a watermelon in the States, have watermelon in Israel. It's like a completely different experience, right? Because they mm-hmm. allow the land to recoup. They're not just trying to like, blah, 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 you know, produce, produce, produce and drain all the nutrients out of the soil. So yeah. I think it is a kind of way to live a mentally healthy life as well. Oh, we're so lucky to be Jewish. So listen, Dr. Shooter, it's been so great to have you on. I can't wait to see what's next for you. What is next for you? <laughs> Are you going to tell me? I want to do another show. I have a couple ideas that we're you know, going to be pitching soon. I'm really excited. I think it's going to be super fun. I always loved like being on and performing. I did dance. I was in theater. And so I just, and I love educating the masses. I think it's so fulfilling in a whole other level. So that that's happening. Definitely the podcast, you guys, it's called The Closet. We'll um, link to it in the show notes. It's awesome. Yes, please, please support conversations, not always PC, which is how I like it. And yeah, I think it's just spending time with the family. You know, my, my kids are going to find out about schools in a couple of weeks. My eldest, we have to start looking at colleges soon, which is so weird. I feel old, old, old. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Kind of enjoying what we've built and seeing what feels right and sort of you know leaning into that and I can imagine there's so many people listening thinking I wish I could be my most authentic self like Dr Sheila and I I hope that you're inspired by her to be your most authentic self because what was it Judy Garland who said everybody no was who was it said everybody else is taken so you might as well be yourself yeah, I, might as well be, I don't know but I love the quote God rewards the authentic and I think it's so true like I lost a lot of followers. I'm probably a hundred thousand followers down from where I was before, but the people that are following me now love me. They're your people. You don't need the real me, not someone I'm pretending to be again for mental health, walking on eggshells. No bueno, you know, but being your authentic self and learning and discussing and asking questions without fear. Like we can't even ask questions anymore. Right. Without fearing getting canceled or like whatever. No, ask questions talk to people as long as you come from a place of love and core values you cannot get canceled and open your mind as well it's so close-minded to just think one thing and that's all I think and I have to disagree with everyone you know it's it's there's so much to more to enjoy from life well look we'll link to all your fabulous um world of Dr. Sheila Nazarian in the show notes and thank thank you you for coming on the podcast thank you my pleasure If you want my free guide to how to stand up to anti-Semitism in 2022 in a safe, effective way, just go to yourjewishlife.co slash stop. That's yourjewishlife.co slash S-T-O-P. It's a really great guide. It's really concise. Take you a few minutes to read, but it's got tips for dealing with overt acts of anti-Semitic hate, as well as microaggressions. There's lots of resources, additional books, Instagram accounts and podcasts. And it's just a really, really empowering resource that everyone needs to own. It's my How to Stand Up to Anti-Semitism in a Safe, Effective Way guide. It's at yourjewishlife.co slash stop.